0: chapter 51 part 1 of a popular history of france from the earliest times volume 6 this librivox recording is in the public domain a popular history of france from the earliest times volume 6 by françois guizot translated by robert black chapter 51 louis the 15th the regency and cardinal dubois 1715 to 1723 part 1 at the very moment when the master's hand is missed from his work, the narrative makes a sudden bound out of the simple times of history. Under Henry the IV, under Richelieu, under Louis the Fourteenth, events found quite naturally their guiding hand and their centre. Men as well as circumstances formed a group around the head of the nation, whether king or minister, to thence unfold themselves quite clearly before the eyes of posterity. Starting from the reign of Louis the Fifteenth, the nation has no longer a head, history no longer a centre. At the same time with a master of the higher order, great servants also fail the French monarchy. It all at once collapses, betraying thus the exhaustion of Louis the Fourteenth's latter years. Decadence is no longer veiled by the remnants of the splendour which was still reflected from the great king and his great reign. The glory of olden France descends slowly to its grave. At the same time, and in a future as yet obscured, intellectual progress begins to dawn. New ideas of justice, of humanity, of generous equity towards the masses germinate sparsely in certain minds. It is no longer Christianity alone that inspires them, though the honour is reflected upon it in a general way, and as regards the principles with which it has silently permeated modern society. But they who contribute to spread them, refuse with indignation to acknowledge the source whence they have drawn them. Intellectual movement no longer appertains exclusively to the higher classes, to the ecclesiastics, or to the members of the parliaments. Vaguely, as yet, and retarded by apathy in the government as well as by disorder in affairs, it propagates and extends itself imperceptibly pending that signal and terrible explosion of good and evil which is to characterize the close of the eighteenth century decadence and progress are going on confusedly in the minds as well as in the material condition of the nation they must be distinguished and traced without any pretence of separating them there we have the reign of louis the fifteenth in its entirety the regency of the duke of orleans and the ministry of cardinal dubois showed certain traits of the general tendencies and to a certain extent felt their influence they formed however a distinct epoch abounding in original efforts and bold attempts which remained without result but which testify to the lively reaction in men's minds against the courses and fundamental principles of the reign which had just ended Louis Fourteenth had made no mistake about the respect which his last wishes were destined to meet with after his death. In spite of the most extreme precautions, the secret of the will had transpired, giving occasion for some days past to secret intrigues. Scarcely had the King breathed his last when the Duke of Orléans was urged to get the Regency conferred upon him by the Dukes and peers, simply making to Parliament an announcement of what had been done the duke of orleans was a better judge of the moral authority belonging to that important body and it was to the palace of justice that he repaired on the morning of september two seventeen fifteen the crowd there was immense the young king alone was not there in spite of his great-grandfather's express instructions the day was a decisive one the legitimite princes were present the duke of maine bursting with joy says st simon a smiling, satisfied air overrippled that of audacity of confidence which nevertheless peeped through, and the politeness which seemed to struggle against it. He bowed right and left, piercing every one with his looks towards the peers. The earnestness it is not too much to say the respectfulness, the slowness the profoundness of his bow was eloquent his head remained lowered even on recovering himself the duke of orleans had just begun to speak his voice was not steady he repeated the terms of which the king had made use he said for the purpose of confiding the dauphin to his care to you i commend him serve him faithfully as you have served me and labor to preserve to him his kingdom i have made such dispositions as i thought wisest but one cannot foresee everything. If there is anything that does not seem good, it will of course be altered. The favour of the assembly was plainly with him, and the prince's accents became more firm. I shall never, said he, have any other purpose but to relieve the people, to re-establish good order in the finances, to maintain peace at home and abroad, and to restore unity and tranquillity to the church. Therein I shall be aided by the wise representations of this august assembly, and I hereby ask for them in anticipation. The Parliament was completely won. The right of representation, or remonstrance, was promised them. The will of Louis the Fourteenth was as good as annulled. It was opened, it was read, and so were the two codicils. All the authority was entrusted to a council of regency, of which the Duke of Orléans was to be the head, but without preponderating voice, and without power to supersede any of the members, all designated in advance by Louis the Fourteenth. The person and the education of the young king, as well as the command of the household troops, were entrusted to the Duke of Maine. Quote, it was listened to in dead silence, and with a sort of indignation which expressed itself in all countenances, says Saint-Simon the king no doubt did not comprehend the force of what he had been made to do said the duke of orleans he assured me in the last days of his life that i should find in his dispositions nothing that i was not sure to be pleased with and he himself referred the ministers to me on business with all the orders to be given he asked therefore to have his regency declared such as it ought to be full and independent with free formation of the council of regency the duke of maine wished to say a word you shall speak in your turn sir said the duke of orleans in a dry tone the court immediately decided in his favor by acclamation and even without proceeding in the regular way to vote there remained the codicils which annulled in fact the regent's authority a discussion began between the duke of orleans and the duke of maine it was causing philip of orleans to lose the advantage he had just won his friends succeeded in making him perceive this and he put off the session until after dinner when they returned to the palace of justice the codicils were puffed away like the will by the breath of popular favor the duke of maine despoiled of the command of the king's household declared that under such conditions it was impossible for him to be answerable for the king's person and that he demanded to be relieved of that duty most willingly sir replied the regent your services are no longer required and he forthwith explained to the parliament his intention of governing affairs according to the plan which had been found among the papers of the duke of burgundy those gentry know little or nothing of the french and of the way to govern them had been the remark of Louis the fourteenth on reading the schemes of fenelon the duke of Beauvilliers and saint-simon the parliament applauded the formation of the six councils of foreign affairs of finance of war of the marine of home or the interior of conscience or ecclesiastical affairs the regent was entrusted with the free disposal of graces i want to be free for good said he adroitly repeating a phrase from telemaque i consent to have my hands tied for evil the victory was complete not a shred remained of louis the Fourteenth's will the duke of maine confounded and humiliated retired to his castle of Sceaux, there to endure the reproaches of his wife the king's affection and madame de maintenon's clever tactics had not sufficed to found his power the remaining vestiges of his greatness were themselves about to vanish before long in their turn on the twelfth of september the little king held a bed of justice his governess madame de ventadour sat alone at the feet of the poor orphan abandoned on the pinnacle of power all the decisions of september two were ratified in the child's name louis the fourteenth had just descended to the tomb without pomp and without regret the joy of the people broke out indecently as the funeral train passed by. The nation had forgotten the glory of the great king. It remembered only the evils which had for so long oppressed it during his reign. The new councils had already been constituted when it was discovered that commerce had been forgotten, and to it was assigned a seventh body. three sorts of men, the choice of whom was dictated by propriety, weakness, and necessity, filled the lists. In the first place, great lords, veterans in intrigue, but novices in affairs, and less useful from their influence than embarrassing from their pride and their pettiness. Next, the regent's friends, the cream of the roads, possessed with the spirit of opposition and corruption, ignorant and clever, bold and lazy, and far better calculated to harass than to conduct a government lastly below them were pitchforked in pell-mell councillors of state masters of requests members of parliament well-informed and industrious gentlemen fated henceforth to crawl about at the bottom of the committees and without the spur of glory or emulation To repair the blunders which must be expected from the incapacity of the first and the recklessness of the second class amongst their colleagues. Le Monti, Histoire de la Regence, page sixty-seven. It is necessary, the young king was made to say in the preamble to the ordinance which established the councils that affairs should be regulated rather by unanimous consent than by way of authority. How singular are the monstrosities of experience at the head of the council of finance a place was found for the duke of noailles active in mind and restless in character without any fixed principles an adroit and a shameless courtier strict in all religious observances under louis the fourteenth and a notorious debauchee under the regency but intelligent insolent ambitious hungering and thirsting to do good if he could but evil if need were, and in order to arrive at his ends. His uncle, Cardinal Noailles, who had been but lately threatened by the court of Rome with the loss of his hat, and who had seen himself forbidden to approach the dying king, was now president of the Council of Conscience. Marshal Duxelles, one of the negotiators who had managed the Treaty of Utrecht, was at the head of of Foreign Affairs the regent had reserved to himself one single department the academy of sciences i quite intend said he gaily to ask the king on his majority to let me still be secretary of state of the academy the regent's predilection consolidating the work of colbert contributed to the development of scientific researches for which the neatness and clearness of french thought rendered it thenceforth so singularly well adapted. The gates of the prison were meanwhile being thrown open to many a poor creature. The Jansenists left the Bastille. Others, who had been for a long time past in confinement, were still ignorant of the grounds for their captivity, which was by this time forgotten by everybody. A wretched Italian, who had been arrested the very day of his arrival in Paris thirty-five years before, begged to remain in prison he had no longer any family or relatives or resources for a while the protestants thought they saw their advantage in the clemency with which the new reign appeared to be inaugurated and began to meet again in their assemblies the regent had some idea of doing them justice re-establishing the edict of nantes and reopening to the exiles the doors of their country but his counsellors dissuaded him the more virtuous, like Saint-Simon, from Catholic piety, the more depraved from policy and indifference. However, the lot of the Protestants remained under the Regency less hard than it had been under Louis Fourteenth, and than it became under the Duke of Bourbon. The Chancellor voisin had just died. To this post the regent summoned the Attorney-General, d'Aguesseau, beloved and esteemed of all, learned, eloquent, virtuous, but too exclusively a man of Parliament for the functions which had been confided to him. He would have made a sublime premier-president, said Saint-Simon, who did not like him. The magistrate was attending mass at Saint-André-des-Arts. He was not ignorant of the Chancellor's death, when a valet came in great haste to inform him that the regent wanted him at the Palais-Royal d'Aguesseau piously heard out the remainder of the mass before obeying the prince's orders. The casket containing the seals was already upon the table. The Duke of Orleans took the Attorney-General by the arm, and going out with him into the gallery thronged with courtiers, said, quote, Gentlemen, here is your new and most worthy chancellor. End quote, and he took him away with him to the Tuileries, to pay his respects to the little king. On returning home, still all in a whirl, D'Aguesseau went up to the room of his brother, M. de Valjoin, a sort of epicurean, or voluptueux, philosopher, with plenty of wit and learning, but altogether one of the oddest creatures. End quote. He found him in his dressing-gown, smoking in front of the fire. Quote, brother, said he as he entered, I have come to tell you that I am chancellor. Quote, chancellor said the other turning round and what have you done with the other one quote, he died suddenly to-night quote, oh very well brother i am very glad i would rather it were you than i End quote. and he resumed his pipe madame d'agassiz was better pleased her husband has eulogized her handsomely quote, a wife like mine he said is a good man's highest reward End quote. The new system of government, as yet untried, and confided to men for the most part little accustomed to affairs, had to put up with the most formidable difficulties, and a struggle against the most painful position. The treasury was empty, and the country exhausted. The army was not paid, and the most honorable men, such as the Duke of Saint-Simon, saw no other remedy for the evils of the state but a total bankruptcy and the convocation of the states-general both expedients were equally repugnant to the duke of orleans the duke of noailles had entered upon a course of severe economy the king's household was diminished twenty-five thousand men were struck off the strength of the army exemption from talliage for six years was promised to all such discharged soldiers as should restore a deserted house and should put into cultivation the fields lying waste at the same time something was being taken off the crushing weight of the taxes and the state was assuming the charge of recovering them directly without any regard for the real or supposed advances of the receivers-general their accounts were submitted to the revision of the brothers paris sons of an innkeeper of the Dauphinese alps who had made fortunes by military contracts and were all four reputed to be very able in matters of finance they were likewise commissioned to revise the bills circulating in the name of the State. In other words, to suppress a great number without reimbursement to the holder, a sort of bankruptcy in disguise, which did not help to raise the public credit. At the same time also a chamber of justice instituted for that purpose was prosecuting the tax-farmers, or traitants, as Louis the Fourteenth had done at the commencement of his reign, during the suit against fouquet all were obliged to account for their acquisitions and the state of their fortunes the notaries were compelled to bring their books before the court several tax farmers killed themselves to escape the violence and severity of the procedure the parliament anything but favourable to the speculators but still less disposed to suffer its judicial privileges to be encroached upon found fault with the degrees of the chamber the regent's friends were eager to profit by the reaction which was manifesting itself in the public mind. Partly from compassion, partly from shameful cupidity, all the courtiers set themselves to work to obtain grace for the prosecuted financiers. The finest ladies sold their protection with brazen faces. The regent, who had sworn to show no favour to anybody, yielded to the solicitations of his friends, to the great disgust of M. Ruy du member of the Council of Finance, who directed the operations of the Chamber of Justice with the same stern frankness which had made him not long before say to a body of tax-farmers, who wanted to put at his disposal a certain number of shares in their enterprise, and suppose I were to go shares with you, how could I have you hanged in case you were rogues? Nobody was really hanged although torture and the penalty of death had been set down in the list of punishments to which the guilty were liable out of four thousand five hundred amenable cases nearly three thousand had been exempted from the tax the corruption is so widespread says the preamble to the edict of march seventeen twenty seven which suppressed the chamber of justice that nearly all conditions have been infected by it, in such sort that the most righteous severities could not be employed to punish so great a number of culprits without causing a dangerous interruption to commerce and a kind of general shock in the system of the State." The resources derived from the punishment of the tax-farmers, as well as from the revision of the State's debts, thus remaining very much below expectation, the deficit went on continually increasing in order to re-establish the finances the duke of Noailles demanded fifteen years impracticable economy as chimerical as the increment of the revenues on which he calculated and the duke of orleans finally suffered himself to be led away by the brilliant prospect which was flashed before his eyes by the scotsman law who had now for more than two years been settled in france law born at edinburgh in sixteen eleven son of a goldsmith had for a long time been scouring europe seeking in a clever and systematic course of gambling a source of fortune for himself and the first foundation of the great enterprises he was revolving in his singularly inventive and daring mind passionately devoted to the financial theories he had conceived law had expounded them to all the princes of europe in succession he says that of all the persons to whom he has spoken about his system he has found but two who apprehended it to wit the king of sicily and my son wrote madame the regent's mother victor amadeo however had rejected law's proposals i'm not powerful enough to ruin myself he had said law had not been more successful with louis the fourteenth the regent had not the same repugnance for novelties of foreign origin. So soon as he was in power he authorized the Scot to found a circulating and discount bank, or Banque de Circulation et d'Escompte, which at once had very great success and did real service. Encouraged by this first step, Law reiterated to the regent that the credit of bankers and merchants decoupled their capital if the state became the universal banker and centralised all the values in circulation the public fortune would naturally be decoupled a radically false system fated to plunge the state and consequently the whole nation into the risks of speculation and trading without the guarantee of that activity zeal and prompt resolution which able men of business can import into their private enterprises the system was not as yet applied. The discreet routine of the French financiers was scared at such risky chances. The pride of the great lords sitting in the council was shocked at the idea of seeing the state turning banker, perhaps even trader. Saint Simon maintained that what was well enough for a free state could not take place under an absolute government. Law went on, however, to his bank. He had just added a great company the king ceded to him louisiana which was said to be rich in gold and silver mines superior to those of mexico and peru people vaunted the fertility of the soil the facility offered for trade by the extensive and rapid stream of the mississippi it was by the name of that river that the new company was called at first though it soon took the title of compagnie d'occident when it had obtained the privilege of trading in senegal and in guinea it became the compagnie des indes on forming a fusion with the old enterprises which worked the trade of the east for the generality and in the current phraseology it remained the mississippi and that is the name it has left in history new orleans was beginning to arise at the mouth of that river law had bought belle ile en mer and was constructing the port of Lorient, the regent's councillors were scared and disquieted the chancellor proclaimed himself loudly against the deception or illusion which made of louisiana a land of promise he called to mind that crozat had been ruined in searching for mines of the precious metals there Quote, the worst of him was his virtue said duclos the regent made a last effort to convert him as well as the duke of noailles to the projects of law it was at a small house in the faubourg st antoine called la roquette belonging to the last named that the four interlocutors discussed the new system thoroughly with the use of very sensible language law had the gift of explaining himself so clearly and intelligibly that he left nothing to desire as concerned making himself comprehended the duke of orleans liked him and relished him he regarded him and all he did as work of his own creation he liked moreover extraordinary and out-of-the-way methods and he embraced them the more readily in that he saw the resources which had become so necessary for the state and all the ordinary operations of finance vanishing away This liking of the regents wounded Noailles as being adopted at his expense. He wanted to be sole master in the matter of finance, and all the eloquence of law could not succeed in convincing him. The Chancellor stood firm. The Parliament, which ever remained identified in his mind with his country, was in the same way opposed to law. The latter declared that the obstacles which arrested him at every step through the ill will of the council and of the magistrates were ruining all the fruits of his system the representations addressed by the parliament to the king on the 20th of january touching a recoinage of all monies which had been suggested by law dealt the last blow at the chancellor's already tottering favour on the morning of the 23rd m. de la villière went to him on behalf of the regent and demanded the return of the seals was a little affected and surprised monseigneur he wrote to the duke of orleans you gave me the seals without any merit on my part you take them away without any demerit he had received orders to withdraw to his estate at fresnes the regent found his mere presence irksome d'aguesseau set out at once he had taken his elevation like a sage says st simon and it was as a sage, too, that he fell. Quote, the important point, wrote the disgraced magistrate to his son, is to be well with one's self. The Duke of Noailles had resigned his presidency of the Council of Finance. But, ever adroit, even in disgrace, he had managed to secure himself a place in the Council of Regency. The seals were entrusted to M. d'Argenson for some years past, chief of police at paris with a forbidding face which reminded one of the three judges of hades he made fun out of everything without excellence of wit and he had established such order amongst that innumerable multitude of paris that there was no single inhabitant of whose conduct and habits he was not cognizant from day to day with exquisite discernment in bringing a heavy or light hand to bear on every matter that presented itself, ever leaning towards the gentler side, with the art of making the most innocent tremble before him. Saint-Simon, page 387. Courageous, bold, audacious in facing riots, and thereby master of the people, he was at the same time endowed with prodigious activity, He was seen commencing his audiences at three in the morning, dictating to four secretaries at once on various subjects, and making his rounds at night whilst working in his carriage at a desk lighted with wax candles. For the rest, without any dread of Parliament which had often attacked him, he was in his nature royal and fiscal. He cut knots, he was a foe to lengthiness, to useless forms or such as might be skipped, To neutral or wavering conditions. Le Monti, Histoire de la Regence, page seventy-seven. The regent considered that he had secured to himself an effective instrument of his views. Acceptance of the system had been the condition sine qua non of Monsieur d'Argenson's elevation. He, however, like his predecessors, attempted before long to hamper the march of the audacious foreigner but the die had been cast, and the Duke of Orléans outstripped law himself in the application of his theories. A company formed secretly and protected by the new keeper of the seals had brought up the general farmings, or ferme générale, that is to say, all the indirect taxes for the sum of forty-eight million fifty-two thousand livres. The Compagnie des Indes repurchased them for fifty-two millions. The general receipts were likewise conceded to it, and Law's bank was proclaimed a royal bank. The company shares already amounted to the supposed value of all the coins circulating in the kingdom, estimated at seven or eight millions. Law thought he might risk everything in the intoxication which had seized all France, capital and province. He created some fifteen hundred millions of new shares— promising his shareholders a dividend of twelve per cent. From all parts silver and gold flowed into his hands. Everywhere the paper of the bank was substituted for coin. The delirium had mastered all minds. The street called Quincampoix, for a long time past devoted to the operations of bankers, had become the usual meeting-place of the greatest lords as well as of discreet burgesses. It had been found necessary to close the two ends of the streets with gates, open from six a.m. to nine p.m. Every house harbored business agents by the hundred. The smallest room was let for its weight in gold. The workmen who made the paper for the banknotes could not keep up with the consumption. The most modest fortunes suddenly became colossal. Lackeys of yesterday were millionaires to-morrow. Extravagance followed the progress of this outburst of riches, and the price of provisions followed the progress of extravagance. Enthusiasm was at its height in favour of the able author of so many benefits. Law became a convert to Catholicism, and was made controller general. All the court was at his feet. Quote, my son was looking for a duchess to escort my granddaughter to Genoa writes madame the regent's mother send and choose one at madame law's said i you'll find them all sitting in her drawing-room law's triumph was complete the hour of his fall was about to strike End of chapter fifty one part one